Hey, welcome to the Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Happy politics. And in this episode, we're joined by the two candidates seeking to represent District 9 on the Boston City Council, Craig Cashman and Liz Breeden, who finished in first and second place in a seven-candidate preliminary election back in September. Come next year, one of them will represent Alston Brighton, which is currently represented by Mark Siomo and just happens to be the City Council District that WGBH calls home. Liz and Craig, thank you both for coming in. Thanks for having us. So as someone who works in Alston Brighton, Brighton specifically, it's my sense that this part of the city is changing faster than any other part of Boston right now. There's the Boston Landing Development, which sprang up seemingly overnight in what used to be a deserted neighborhood largely and now kind of makes this area feel like a mini seaport. Then, too, there's all the building that Harvard University is doing as they expand their footprint into the city out of Cambridge. So my opening question for the two of you is, is this the right amount of development or is it too much? There's certainly a a feeling that, you know, our neighborhood is is um, suffocating with development right now. Um, I do think sort of the areas that you spoke of uh, in your question, um, you know, they they can be developed. Uh, I think this, you know, whether you s- support what happened here on Guest Street, um, com- like you referenced, compared to what it was. I know when I was a kid, what it was um, was just a, bun- a bunch of rundown old industrial buildings, a very blighted area. That's what it um, was when I started working here about yeah, 10 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, it, it definitely has its, its issues. I mean, uh, the affordability uh, aspect of the housing component. But it also has a win in, in, you know, bringing, you know, partners like the Bruins and Celtics here, but also a privately funded $26 million commuter rail station. I think for the neighborhood as a whole, that's a win. And as you go down to Harvard, I mean, I think it's just it's it's 180 to 100 acres of developable land. It just needs to be done with thought and, and the respect and integrity of the neighborhood in mind. You think they're on the right track when it comes to Harvard? Well, I mean, we don't know exactly what they're going to do yet. So uh, making sure that um, that whole I mean, the Mass Pike needs to move first um, and that's that's going to happen. But, you know, the community needs to be part of that process. You know, there's a lot of potential to unlock down there. And, um, you know, the community needs to have some say uh, and certainly needs to to get something out of it as well. All right. Liz Breeden, what do you think? Absolutely. We, we have a, had a huge amount of new development, not only around Guest, Guest Street, but we've had a lot of uh, residential development, like about thousands of new units of housing. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's in, I'm not against development, but unfortunately, so much of it is unaffordable for the, the people who actually live and work in Alston Brighton. And it's, a lot of it is desi- designated as transit-oriented, which assumes that you know people won't be using a car, that they'll get be able to get around in public transit. The other side of that is that apart from Bright Boston Landing, there's been very little appreciable improvement or investment in our public transit system, and that's what we need if we we aspire to be a world class city. Boston needs to ha- really step it up and regionally invest in our mass transit system so that we don't have all of our steep streets clogged up with traffic and people commuting in from the from the suburbs just blocking up our congesting our streets and parking lot we have a parking lot in Brighton I should uh, admit by way of full disclosure that I am one of those people driving in from the suburbs and clogging <laughs> up the streets by parking on city streets so just to put that on the table you're talking to me right there well I will complain that I am one of those Bostonians who 
if I come by T, because I don't drive, coming from Jamaica Plain, this is not impossible to get to, but you have to go around the world unless you take the commuter rail. Um, but even then, um, Alston Brighton is a difficult place to connect with from other parts of the city. I would definitely yeah. say the same thing about Jamaica Plain. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on which way you're coming from. Yeah. You can't get there from here. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a question that may bring us deeper into the issues that um, Craig and Les just um, raised. Councillor um, Wu, City Councillor Wu, has suggested that the Boston Planning and Development Authority be abolished. And her colleague, um, Councillor Edwards, has suggested a major overhaul of the ZBA, the Zoning Board of Appeals. Um, I'm assuming both of you have read both their proposals. Um, Liz, what do you think of both Councillor Wu and Councillor Edwards' suggestions? Well, I, I think they both merit uh, a deep reflection and, and study. I, I actually agree with Councillor Wu's uh, proposal to abolish the BPDA or doing business as the BRA, as it was. Yes, I still think of it. And it's still doing business as the BBD, BPDA. Um, the issue really, um, at, at the issue at hand is really the absence of really good planning. Uh, we Boston doesn't do planning. We, we have developers come in with a proposal and it's it has a public comment period and they do presentations and uh, it's presented. Then it's taken to the Zoning Board of Appeal and uh, nine times, most of the time it's approved. And uh, so we have a, a project by project approach and it doesn't, a, a comprehensive planning approach would take into account the need for in infrastructure improvements and all the support services you need. Uh, utilities, etc. So I really think it's time that we had other cities have, have disbanded their uh, the redevelopment authorities a long time ago, and I think Boston is time we did that too. Well, Liz, quick question: Who's helped and who's hurt by the existing system? I think uh, I think well-connected developers uh, are helped by the system. I think uh, on the downside, I think it, uh, the voice of communities uh, takes takes a back seat. And uh, you know, we've we've had projects in this neighbourhood that had overwhelming opposition from the community, and we even got our elected officials to oppose the the project uh, as it stood, and we still ended up with a project like the St. Gabriel's project up on Washington Street. It, it got approved about over the objections of all of our elected officials and over the absolute unanimous objection of the community. And we have a project that n none of us in the, in the neighbourhood can afford to live in. Craig, what do you think of Michelle Wu's proposal to do away with the BPDA? Well, first, I, th I think uh, the work that she did to put all that information together was impressive. And, you know, I support the efforts, you know, from the beginning of my campaign, I I've talked about ind independent planning um, 
an independent planning agency uh, for Boston because of the frustrations in this neighborhood. Um, particularly, you know, if you think about just past, you know, here with Alston Yards and then moving on the other side of Everett Street to Rug Road and Penniman Road, you have all these developments that are happening right on top of one another and you really have no conversation going on among the development community uh, who's doing, who, who, who are building those projects or proposing those projects. So the city should facilitate that and it comes from planning. Um, now, uh, people will tell you that there is, I mean, obviously they rebranded the BRA with planning and I'm sure that there are urban planners in there that, you know, feel maybe a little slighted uh, with what's what's been said about the, the agency. But maybe we don't need to completely reinvent the wheel. Um, maybe we can go in and, and actually make fixes or maybe we don't have to. I mean, I think... But we, I, I agree with Liz on this sense that we need independent planning. And as far as the zoning, I, I think the zoning board um, might be the one that, you know, f- the projects that go through the zoning board are the ones that maybe frustrate me a little more because, you know, they tend to be the ones that don't get as much publicity. You know, they're the ones who are on the interior of the neighborhoods um, where, you know, somebody wants to knock down a single family home and build a, an outrageous eight unit or 12 unit uh, condo building. And then, you know, somebody who just wants to put a dormer on their house because they need a room for their their growing family, um, they don't have the, you know, the, the capital to go in and, and sort of get that done. So I, I think the zoning fix is something that needs to happen. Um, I would definitely support putting uh, different types of people on there, you know, urban planners, not people, people from nonprofits and, and housing nonprofits. But the BPDA, it's it's definitely part of the conversation. Um, you know, planning is something that just doesn't happen. And, um, you know, I think we we see that here every day. And just to swing back to the issue about planning, we have so much development in the pipeline here in Alston Brighton with regard to, like, the continuation of Guest Street and then the whole Harvard uh, project down, down uh, at Beacon Yards. We really, it's absolutely essential that we plan for transit, in that, not just, uh, you know, improving the commuter rail schedule and expanding that, but we need some serious consideration of of uh, other transportation options so that, that workers can get back and forward to work without using cars. Um, so the, the issue um, really is to try and not repeat the mistakes of what happened down in the seaport because the seaport was developed without a serious transit plan. The, the transit plan should have been in place before they developed the seaport. I can't tell if you are alluding to this. I always forget the, the name that its proponents use. Is it Grand Junction, the Grand, idea the for... Grand Junction Spur, th- yeah. Okay, yeah. Do you, yeah. Are you guys both... Would you guys both I like to see that constructed? It seems like the Baker administration well, does not want to do that. You're definitely well, yeses, both of you. It seems like a win-win. Like, uh, we already have a, a, a rail link across the across the Charles over to, to Cambridge. Um, that's used for freight, freight I think. Um, so, you know, I know um, we've had, there's a conversation going along with the, the communities further out of, in, in Metro West, uh, improving the access to the city using uh, commuter rail and a link across into Cambridge would dramatically change our traffic traffic patterns in the city. For the record, that is something that would potentially change me from being one of the people driving from the <laughs> suburbs and clogging up your streets, because then I would be able to get to uh, 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 where we are from North Station, which is currently a really and, dicey business. And, Craig, go and, ahead. And so. you know, there's 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 so much, um, you know, there's there's going to be a way to make that happen. I mean, when you talk about 
when the Mass Pike does move, once we start that project, which is going to be, you know, a, a, a you know ten to twelve year um, impact on our neighborhood That's and certainly be the pleasure the region. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, when you talk about um, the Baker administration and just their short sightedness when it comes to the the public transit component of that project, you know, West Station in 2040 is a no-go. They've, they've, they've shown some interest in bump, bumping it up, but it should be in phase one of that project. And then, you know, when I was working with the representative in the state house, I mean, we... This we, is Mike Moran, Mike for Moran, any yeah, who don't know. Yeah, so we, so we, uh, we, we wrote a letter um, to Harvard asking them to, you know, invest privately into West Station. They did to the tune of about $58 million, which at the time, two, two, almost three years ago now, maybe two years ago, was uh, about half of the total build out, you know, in the office in, in the following days, uh, the phone calls started coming in from Kendall Square, you know, talking about this project because um, they look at the Grand Junction bridge, spur, whatever you want to call it as, uh, the, I mean, the, the potential that can be unlocked from um, West Station, when you talk about bus connectivity from north to south, obviously, uh, the commuter rail, but with the potential for light rail at some point down the line, and certainly going over into Kemble Square. I mean, it is why we continue to to look past this, and you know, um, it is something that it's frustrating, um, you know, and it, it's just sort of dying on the vine. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna knock down a highway for ten years, or we're gonna imp- we're we're gonna build it, and but there's gonna be certainly uh, constraints that I think if we could get people incentivized getting on the train, um, people are going to take it. Now, now, let me ask you both. This question is directed at both of you, but a a potentially inconvenient question. Um, I'll grant that it's really important for elected officials at any level to give voice to their constituents' long-term needs. But transportation policy um, I agree with—I would endorse most of what both of you just said, but transportation policy at that level is far removed from the Boston City Council. Mm-hmm. Um, so l- let me challenge you to I- explain why what you think is important for a Boston City Councilor when there's not—other uh, than acting as an echo chamber for your constituents— which I will grant is important. What can you really do about it? I, th- I think um, I sort of alluded to, you know, the the uh, interest from private entities that are out there, and I think those relationships are something that we need to continue to build upon. Um, when you talk about transportation, I think that's the the colleges, um, the, the the business community, um, you know, and, and certainly the development community. As we talk about, Liz alluded to planning, you know, planning around um, transportation. I, I think that that's that's where it comes from. I mean, Harvard is committed to half of the build of this. What is what is BU committed? You know, at one point they they were at a third, but we don't really know what they're at now. Um, what is what is MIT? What is Kendall Square committed to to make this thing happen? Could we fully privately fund a a transportation hub um, and let the state sort of tackle the the rebuilding of of a roadway? Um, that those are that's how a city council I think can move that needle. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's, it is out of the, the reach of a city councilor to, to really affect policy change on the team. But I think some of the things we can look at locally, um, 
you know, one of the things we can really control when it comes to the MBTA or public transit is the buses. Um, we can we can do a better job making sure our buses are getting from point A to point B uh, in, in an efficient way. That's those are the things that we can do. But I, I really think it's it's working with community partners and private partners to make sure that they're, they're the one they're the economic engine driving our economy. Um, they need to invest in public transit. Um, and it's not to say that it's not to take it all off of the state. Um, or the city, but, you know, it, it needs to be collaborative because they're building, the, you know, they're the ones who are bringing innovation to our, uh, growing innovation to our city. You know, we need to capture them and, and make them part of the team. Well, there's two there's two issues that we have to think about. You know, uh, we have a boom going on right now. We're becoming a centre of excellence for biotech and, and uh, all the rest of it in terms of business development. But this, the lack of affordable housing and our lack of a really good mass transit infrastructure, sooner or later it will start to be a drag on our economy. And uh, people just will give up saying, I can go live somewhere else. I don't have to commute two hours each way and, and pay a fortune for a, a housing. Uh, I could do, life's easier somewhere else. So I think it's really important for the economic, long-term economic stability and sustainability of Boston that we, we invest in our housing and we invest in our um, mass transit system so that that, uh, you know, that, that should be a, a, a driver of our economy. I saw an ad on, on Newton television recently uh, where the Chamber of Commerce out there had a, an ad saying they were really begging to have more affordable housing in Newton because the businesses out there can't find their their lower paid workers are having to commute two hours each way, um, and uh, they just can't hire staff anymore. So you know those those issues actually start to impact business sooner or later. Peter, does that answer your question from these two? I, kind of. I, I, I also think the one. If I could add one more thing, I, you know the 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 one other thing that you know may maybe the city council. Um, as a body can can work to uh, facilitate maybe with the help of the Boston delegation um, would be, you know, giving Boston representation on the the oversight board of the T. I think that's something that, you know, is lacking. It's it's a bureaucratic body right now. Um, and, and whether that is somebody who's on the council, somebody who is in planning or uh, transport or, or, or um, BTD, you know, somebody to, you know, when we start talking about things like uh, maybe what Lawrence is doing, where they're making certain bus routes that are, you know, heavily traveled free during peak hours. When we start talking about things like that with the T or rerouting bus routes, I mean, when was we have a couple bus routes in, in our, our neighborhood that, um, you know, maybe we should start looking. I mean, we consolidate. Everything sort of happens. We consolidate stops without, without you know, any sort of community input. So somebody to bring the, the concerns of the, the residents of Boston uh, and the neighborhoods back to the, the T is something I, I think we should fight for as the entire body of the city council should be fighting for. Let's switch gears and talk about the Boston schools and the Boston School Committee, which strict, strictly speaking is way outside of the purview of the Boston City Council, but nevertheless is a, an issue that's really bubbling up from below. So let me put it to you, give you three options. Would you favor keeping the appointed school committee as it now is? Do you think we should move to a totally elected school committee? Or do you think 
a hybrid, a combination of elected and appointed would be the best way to go. I understand the reason why we ended up with an appointed school committee, given the history in Boston. But I really feel now, in this moment in time, we are ready to have an elected school committee again, a fully elected school fully committee. Fully elected. Yes. And I would be... I would be prepared to have a compromise position with a, a hybrid, like some appointed and, and some elected. But I really do think that the status quo is not working. Craig, what do you think? I think uh, we've learned uh, that from the past that an elected school board is, is probably not the best idea. Um, it's too political. Uh, and I don't think we should make the the school board political. You, you know, we already have concerns with certain schools in the city of Boston who have strong, you know, parent networks and parent organizational groups who help those schools reform. I mean, that's that's where you're going to uh, it, it basically will create, you know, larger representation for certain neighborhoods and leave marginalized neighborhoods out of the conversation. And I think that's something to be concerned about when you talk about politicizing uh, an elected school board. Um, and, and so when you talk about hybrid, I don't think it's a it's a appointed elected hybrid. I think you could have uh, uh, the mayoral appointments, but I also think that you could have some city council appointments. I mean, the city council, particularly the district city councilors, are elected by their constituents. And I think that the however, however you want to do it, giving given the, the, the city council the ability to appoint um you know, members and, and ratify them as a check to the mayor's appointees uh, is something that, you know, may work. At the risk of repeating myself, my kids don't go to school in the city. Peter's kids did. My did, kids yeah. do not. But it's my understanding that Boston is the only municipality in the state of Massachusetts that doesn't have an elected school committee. So when you say that it would make it too political, why can Boston not handle that sort of framework when all these other places, including cities that aren't as big as Boston, but are cities with plenty of issues, um, when they can? What, what's the, what's, what makes Boston unique in its inability to handle direct democracy when it comes to I schools? Think, I think it's the, the neighborhoods and, and the neighborhoods that would go underrepresented uh, with an appointed school board. You know, just look at the electorate and, um, you know. Uh, it's it's that would be my 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 real concern. I mean, Austin Brighton, we have low turnout here. Um, somebody, if they're running for school committee, is probably going to have a really hard time um, winning a a school board seat. And you know, we like I say, again, it, the people who are going to to run for these things. I mean, they're they they're gonna. You know, put all their. I'm not to say that everyone's going to do that, but it's it's going to lend to the schools maybe that have that strong network of of parents and and organizers around them who are going to continue to benefit from an elected school board. I really feel we need more democracy in the process because we have a majority minor, um, majority minority city right now, and when you look at the school board, it's not representative of the population that they're serving. I think we. I think there should be opportunities for uh, par parents to be elected to the school board, uh, educators to be elected to the school board to bring more voices to the table to get a different perspective. It's a very top-down paternalistic approach right now, and I think we could do a lot to improve it. Just an observation, um, as someone who cut my teeth as a reporter during the um, school desegregation crisis, and it was a crisis many years ago, um, 
there is still a strong residue. People of a certain age, and older voters do tend to vote. Just remember the, the, the racism and the corruption of the old school committee. But, but I have to say, as a, 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 a parent who had all three of my boys go through the system, um, the system is not responsive. Um, now, that's a sweeping statement. Um, in the system that is least responsive is the administrative side of the public school system, you know, that handles the buses and that makes the assignments and that does all the unglamorous, non-educative stuff. Um, and by the way, it's not because they're rotten people. I mean, I don't exactly know why it is. But um, oh, you're saying the administrative side is the non-responsive side. The, the administrative side is not particularly responsive. Got it. OK. Uh, un, unless, you know, it, it, it's like a Monty Python version of a big bureaucracy. Um, and, and no, and what I'm saying is that there are good people staffing it, but for, but for whatever reasons. And um, I, I used to talk to Maya Menino about this in green rooms and stuff, and they'd say, ah, Kansas, you're crazy. But I think a lot of the unhappiness with the Boston school system comes from parents who, you know, ready to set their hair on fire on administrative matters. Um, and it's particularly tough on um, new immigrant families, um, on the working poor. I mean, as a solidly middle-class family, my wife and I can always adjust our schedules to get something done. You know, if, if you're working in a hospital, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a hospital worker, um, you know, blue-collar worker, you might not have that. Now, by the way, my comments are just are just that, comments. I don't know what the sol I, I used to have strong feelings, but now that my kids are out of the system, I, I feel like I, I should back off with my prescriptions. Just in that vein, do you guys have right now, or have you had previously kids in the Boston public schools? Um, my my two children are two and a half and one and a half, so we're not school age yet. They're not like <laughs> Doogie Hauser types? Or are, no, okay. no. The time will come later. How about you, Liz? Did you ever have kids go no, through I the system? No, I don't have kids in the school system. Okay. Well, although I, I, I would say that the citizens at large have a huge... Um, investment or interest yeah. in the school system. And that's something that the downtown business community really recognizes today yeah. in a way that they didn't say 30 years ago. One of my passions is really to talk about what's happening at Madison Park. Or, uh, oh, what isn't happening. Or what isn't happening, or vocational technical high school. Like this, we have, the, we have a boom in Boston, and there's a generation of young people in the Boston public schools who are not getting an opportunity to be able to get the, te the technical training and, and to get ready to get themselves into professions, careers that they can earn a good living at because the Madison Park uh, Technical High School is not functioning as it should. If you compare what's happening in Madison Park with what's happening out in Worcester at their, their technical high school, they have a 95% uh, graduation rate and they have a, a wait list of 200 students waiting to get into their programs. We have, a, we have about 200 vacant seats over there and we have an abysmal graduation rate. So there's, there's definitely some really serious uh, issues going on there that we need to address. So we can have talks about the school board and this, that and the other thing. It's almost like 
we need to sort of almost get to it and, and fix these things. Yeah, just I, I, I would say my dad was a factory worker who later became a vocational education teacher. Mm -hmm. So I signed on to this a long time ago. The greatest disgrace—one of the greatest disgraces of the Boston public school system is its failure to address vocational education mm -hmm. in a meaningful way. And what happens at Madison Park, as far as I understand, is that they don't actually have any selection criteria. Kids just drift in there and they don't actually know what they want to do. Or uh, It's not a well-structured uh, high school program with admission criteria. In, in, in Worcester, they, have, they, they screen the kids. They figure out what their aptitudes are. They, make, they match them with the best career path that might, might suit them best. And they I have, just always assumed that was how it was done here. No, apparently I, I found out recently that that's one of the reasons why it seems to be have challenges is yeah, they don't actually select the kids. Exactly. The drawer on my own family's experience with this. When my dad grew up in Austin Brighton, and when he, he originally enrolled at Brighton High School, and he decided midway through his freshman year that he should really go to Boston trade. Now, he had no trouble transferring to Boston trade, but he had to repeat his freshman year, not because of grades, because Boston trade had a set four-year policy. And you were welcome to come, but you had to follow the policy. Boston trade used to be a very rigorous school, different from Boston Latin or Boston English, but very rigorous. Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, when you talk about vocational education uh, with, with what we have going on in the city and the boom that we are going through, um, bringing the Boston building trades in to help with this is something that should happen. Um, you know, these kids in this city are watching um, Boston, you know, be built and they need to understand that there those are great jobs um, and you know they a lot of the different trades that are out there have great apprenticeship programs but you know starting to facilitate you know uh, junior apprenticeship programs and if it's through if it's through Madison Park uh, I think that would be a great partnership for BPS to work with them I mean the this is you know you know we don't know what what's if this is gonna go through a slowdown but you know they, they have to understand that these are great jobs and um, that's that's something we really need to hammer home to to the young kids in Boston. And so, you're and you're not closing the door on a, on going on to college. Like so kids can go. It's a high school. They get go vocational technical high school. You just have a if they want to go on to trade become, that you've uh, learned. Yeah, they have a trade, and if they want to go on to become engineers or go to college to four year college to take their career further, then that's always open to them. But a good foundation in their high school program would be a great start. So if. You two are elected. I guess only one of you is going to be elected. Uh, if you are fortunate enough to win this race, I'm curious from each of you, who's the one city councilor you would most look forward to working with? I'd look forward to working with uh, Lydia Edwards. Why Lydia Edwards? Um, she uh, worked in the Department of Housing Stability in the city. Um, she has a background in tenants' rights and housing issues. We have a huge housing challenge in the city, and I really feel that we need to start thinking outside the box and come up with really creative solutions for um, stabilising our housing situation. And I, I really think she, I really look forward to working with her. 
Craig, how about you? It's tough. You know, I've, I've got to know so many of them, you know, working in government. Um, certainly, Councillor Wu, I think, is, is just somebody who is really pushing the needle on all the issues um, in the city right now. Uh, you know, and it's, again, we talk about the T and, and um, you know, how much can a city council actually do, but it's using your platform. And I think that yeah, that's... she really did that pretty yeah, effectively. And I, and I think that's the, the types of approach that we need to take on issues that, you know, we... Uh, if elected as a city councilor, that that we really maybe we can't you know um, push and pull, but we can certainly shout and and make noise. And uh, I think that is something um, that was it was an imp- you know just the 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 she certainly rattled the cage and 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 uh, organized some people. So it's some that's something that uh, you know I would look forward to. I think it's tough to just choose one. Yeah, it is. Oh, but we asked just for one. I know. <laughs> you guys both did a terrific job, by the way. Have, because... we, have a, we have an opportunity to to, change, to really build a strong progressive coalition on city and city council that can move an a, a progressive agenda and make change happen. And I, I think that would be really, really great. Well, let's move on from the city council at large or city council and talk about Mayor Walsh. Um, uh, this question is for both of you, but Liz, I'm going to give it to you first. Rate Mayor Walsh's performance on a scale of 1 to 10. I'd say maybe a 6. Okay. Craig? I, was pointing at Craig. I'll, say, I'll say a 7. I'll go one up on, on Liz. Okay. <laughs> Any advance on 7. The reason I, I really feel that, you know, we, we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of development but I really feel that it's sort of out of balance. We're building, we're building a huge amount of luxury uh, uh, housing that is not we, way more than we need, actually, for the market. And we're not building enough housing for middle-income people in the city. And we're not, certainly not building enough housing for lower-income people in the city. So uh, although we're in this tremendous boom right now, it's not a tide that has lifted all the boats. Do you want to explain you are? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I have great respect for the mayor, and, and um, I think that, you know, he's done some great things. It's um, we're going through a development boom, and, and it just comes back to planning. And um, I think that there are areas of our, of our community that, you know, should be developed. Um, you know, and again, it comes back to the, the where we're sitting right now, um, right next door. I, I think that developing areas that are that are run down and blighted but making sure that it, it's being built for um, people in this neighborhood renters who live in this neighborhood the artist community who lives in this neighborhood the immigrant community that lives in this neighborhood and not just uh, building empty luxury condos or apartments and certainly you know the the um, the millionaires that are that are coming here so I think over the course of the last half hour or so. We've heard some general areas of commonality between you two. We've heard some uh, obvious differences. Are there any big distinctions between the two of you and your visions for the district and the city that you haven't gotten a chance yet to highlight that you want to highlight before we wrap up? I feel like we talk about the same issues we know when we come on these shows. And, and, you know, I think I think we certainly um, I think we understand the issues. You know, uh, we understand that affordability is an issue. Um, We understand that, uh, you know, the development is is suffocating for people um, and transportation and so on and so on. I think that, you know, for me and maybe it's not a common difference. I think it's just what where I where I my approach, uh, I guess, is different is, you know, I'm looking at this as somebody who um, 
is, you know, 36 years old. And, and um, what I, with two young children um, who understands the, the, how hard it is to, to stay in this neighborhood. You know, I wouldn't be living in this neighborhood if not uh, afforded the opportunity for my wife and I to buy a family home. Um, you know, and that's, that's a reality. Uh, I, legislative aides don't make a ton of money. Um, and certainly my wife is a teacher at St. Columkill is right up the street. And, you know, as a kindergarten teacher at a private community school, she makes about a third of what um, a Boston public school kindergarten teacher would make um, in, in, you know, with her experience. And she loves her job. So I support her staying there. And it's a, it's a great community cornerstone. So I think the, the perspective, the generational perspective for me is, is something that, um, you know, I, I plan to bring with me to, to City Hall and, and, and uh, if elected. Liz, so, on the same note, yeah, is there a way in which your perspective differs uh, from Craig's? Well, I, I've been a community activist in the neighborhood for 20 years, and I've worked on issues about around uh, housing stability, saving our library. Uh, I've just really worked in a grassroots capacity to try and in, to try and uh, move move a, a move to make change in the neighborhood and build build a strong coalition across different groups in the neighborhood. I, I think I come from sort of a grassroots bottom-up view of the situation. Uh, I also share uh, Craig's um, appreciation of the fact that I, my partner and I were able to buy a, fam a family home when her mum passed. And uh, without that opportunity, I don't think I'd be living here. I couldn't have afforded to live here with my even on my even on my salary as a physical therapist, I couldn't have afforded, we couldn't have afforded to, to, to buy a home in the neighbourhood. So, you know, uh, it's, it's really, that's the thing that drives me is thinking about our opportunities for owner occupancy in our neighbourhood. Uh, you know, community stability depends on, on uh, making it affordable for renters and for homeowners to stay here. And so that we can build and stabilize our population and that we don't have a constant turnover. Uh, and I think that's for the long term good of our democratic process here, our political strength and our representation in the neighborhood. Uh, I think, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Peter Kadzis, any thoughts or questions in closing? No. Um, just to say that um, I, I've frequently mentioned that I grew up in Dorchester and now live in Jamaica Plain, but I was, as I mentioned earlier, born in Brighton, Alston, Brighton. So it was a long time ago, but it's nice to be talking about the old neighborhood that I was too young to remember by the time we moved away. Everybody lives here at some point in their life, I think, right? That's yeah. a, sort of a running joke. No matter where joke. you go in the world, you'll meet somebody who's, oh, I used to live in Brighton or Alston. <laughs> All right. That is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Liz Breeden and Craig Cashman, thank you both for talking with me and Peter, and good luck between now and November 5th. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Your job is not done yet, though. Please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already. Rate us if you haven't already. And let us know if you have any thoughts about what you just heard, be they positive or negative. Peter and I are on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. He is at Kadzis. You can also reach us by email at scrum at wgbh.org. Our engineer was Dave Goodman. We get crucial production help from him and our colleague Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.